Hey, this is Jim, pastor of Decided Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope the sermon you're about to hear just blesses your heart and really encourages you. If you don't mind, subscribe. That way you'll get instant notifications every time a sermon is uploaded. And by all means, if you're feeling led to give, click on the giving link and there'll be more directions to follow. God bless. Enjoy the message. Well, like Jim said, my name's Dane Hayes, and uh, if this is your first time here, welcome very much to you, because my first time here, I just felt like I'd already been here for a couple years, because the way I was so welcomed in, so I hope you've got to experience that today. If not, meet somebody on the way out, and we'd like to get you, uh, get to know you. Um, but my wife, Lori, she's actually not sitting out here with me. She's in the back. She's going to be doing the slides, so if something goes wrong between me and the slides, it's one of us, um, so we take all that blame today. And um, I did want to talk about um, how this message I had prepared today is such a Holy Spirit-led thing because I chose this topic months ago, and some recent events we've had in the church, unbeknownst to me, took place, and they're very relative. And Jim told me that I was on the sermon schedule in January. He said, hey, you're on the sermon schedule for October. And I was like, okay, I got some time. He's like, yeah, but don't be one of those people who gives me your notes the night before. I was like, okay. So I gave him my notes in February. <laughs> Plenty of time. And uh, he was like, are you sure this was going to be on your heart in October? And I was like, probably not. So I made a few more since then. And this is the one I stuck with probably about April, May, June time frame, somewhere in that quarter. And uh, it's about a race that we all run in this life. And then we recently had the 5K race. Uh, called the Battle of the Decades, where you got to dress up in whatever decade you wanted to pretend to be in. Um, but since we are in the church age, I thought it would be punny, because I like cringy jokes, to rename this message Battle of the Millenniums. So I thought it was funny. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you. I need a yes or an amen for that one. <laughs> All right. So the passage I was going to read from today is from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And there's a lot of implied information that Paul included in this message to his, because it was written to a group of Hebrew people in a given region. And they would have known the history of Judaism and the context from which it was written. So he didn't have to unpack so much. But we're going to do that today because we're not Hebrews. And uh, with that said, I'd like to ask everybody to stand with me while I read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm just going to ask that you would flood this room with your presence, with your Holy Spirit, and I want to ask the congregation that they would open their minds, their ears, and their hearts to let you in, so you would be teaching them what you want them to get from this message. And I ask that in your most precious name, amen. Thank you. Take your seats, please. All right, so... I did want to talk about what led me to this message specifically and why I was so convicted to write it, uh, because up until about 2020, my mom and I had such a close relationship and our 
pass wasn't perfect, but we remained close throughout all of it. And up until uh, 2020, or at 2020, we had a little bit of a falling out because she saw some of the things I was doing in my life that were not right. And she was correcting me. Um, and I didn't want to hear it because I was prideful. And I started digging up bones from the past and say, yeah, what about this when we were kids? What about that? You didn't do that perfect either, right? And I, just, I wasn't receiving what she had to say. What I should have done was receive what she had to say and try to improve myself. And then it started to get pretty vile between us. And we had this one conversation over the phone where it was like, hey, how you doing? I'm good. You too? All right. Love you. Bye. Very topical. And uh, one day, because Lori had stayed in touch with her, because her and Lori were very close, um, she told Lori over the phone to tell me to grow a couple things and confront her with my problems. And so I did. It, it kind of aggravated me that she said that. So I did. And when I called, we entered this screaming match, and nobody could get a word in. Nobody wanted to hear each other. We just wanted to scream over each other. And the last thing I remember from that conversation was some inaudible screaming, and then you SOB click. And I was like, it's like really mad. And I was like, kind of got yourself there. You know? So, and it was like the most immature response I could have had. And uh, I found out two months later that that would be the last thing she ever said to me. And ever since then, Things haven't been so funny, or the sun hasn't been shining so bright ever since. And how could it? If you've lost a parent, you may know what I'm talking about. But at that point, death is so final. And the fun and the games, it's all over. The arguing, nobody's going to get any more words in. And everything became really real to me at that moment. Because up until that point, death of a immediate family member is always something that happens to somebody else. You never even let it enter your mind. You don't even want to entertain it. You don't get a do-over. You don't get to, hey, one more thing before you go. You got what you got. And I know I've learned the hardest lesson of forgiveness that day and ever since. It's going to be a thorn in my side. It's going to be a lesson I've learned for like ever. Um, it's that nightmare scenario that your grandmother always tells you, tell your family you love them because you never know. It's going to be the last time, right? Well, I didn't listen to that either. And uh, because I was so prideful, I, I wasn't going to call her back. She hung up on me. I didn't want to be the, the mature one and call her. And I was going to wait her out. And I eventually did. And I sure showed her. But it's because of my pride and arrogance. And I was broken for such a, it was really a short time, and I'm thankful for that. And I say a short time because about four days later, um, I had this moment of affirmation and comfort and confidence, which ultimately became joy through all that conviction. Because I know that only because of what Jesus has done, and it's because of him existing, that she knows now how much I love her and how much I really do forgive her and really did not have those things against her. And I know now that she didn't either. And I can have that confidence because I have faith in Christ and I know that I'll live in eternity with her. So we love each other. And I know she's in that great cloud of witnesses Paul writes about. 
And Paul speaks about in Hebrews, and he's fully aware, they're fully aware of the life that we're leading. And it's, my life's not perfect, but it is Christ-centered, and it's a process because I'm hard-headed. Um, slide three, please. And I wanted to say that I'm running this race because I want to see her again, and I want to see all my loved ones again. And I also want to lead my life in such a way that my family would want to come see me too because while I long to see her, I know that they do not look forward to that day when I go. But if I lead them in such a way, I know that they will have faith in Christ. Dylan gave some really good stats. If you're the man of the house, you have really good odds of leading your family to him and having life eternally with him. And there's one last thing I was going to address about that cloud of witnesses. I want to let you know that they love you. If you have somebody that you're thinking of right now, they love you more purely than they ever did before. And they're closer to you now than they ever have been. And I would never say it's a blessing to lose somebody, but you will receive a blessing because of that. And it will be relative to those circumstances. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Imagine the absolute joy and elation and the blessing that a mother or father who's lost a child will feel when they're all once again reunited in heaven. And it's something that I hope I never have to experience, but they will. But in this passage, slide four, Paul uses the analogy of a race, which is a physical analogy, but for a spiritual struggle that we all have. And we use many parts of our body when we run a race, but I'm just going to highlight four of them. We have hands, feet, <laughs> eyes, and the heart. And your hands are one of the most important, if not maybe the most important part of running a race, because if you didn't have your hands, you didn't tie your shoes, you didn't get dressed, you didn't drive to that 5K race that you guys ran. I didn't. Maybe I'll do it next year. But <laughs> with, without your hands, you wouldn't be able to do much. And the feet is where the rubber of your shoes meets the road. And you take one step after another, getting you closer and closer to the goal. It's a repetitive thing. You don't just take two steps into the race and then you're done. It's something you continually use. And your eyes are what you're focused on throughout the race. What hazards you may avoid or somebody to consider to your left or right, where the finish line is. And your heart is the innermost driving force behind your race. And if you keep that in good condition, you can have a really good chance to succeed. So I want to talk about how we use these body parts in a spiritual sense. Hands prepare us for the race in this analogy because Paul says we should lay aside our weights and sins, which cling so closely. There's a lot of things we're faced with in this life that seem to bear down on us. And it's really amazing the weights we can carry because we weren't designed to do that. We were designed to live in holy peace and paradise as image bearers of God. And we don't have to carry these weights. Paul says, lay them aside. He doesn't say fight against them or figure out how to carry more. I used to be in the Marine Corps and we carry a lot of weights. You'll have these 50 pound sappy plates on all four sides. You've got a 60 pound pack. You've got a helmet and a rifle. It really weighs you down. You're not the most agile person in the world. But 
something that made us very effective is that we're very maneuverable because we would shed all those things. You have to take all those packs and all those things off. It's a little bit of a risk, I guess. But I want to ask you what weighs you down in this life. Is it the loss of a loved one like we spoke about? Or is it a broken relationship with a parent or any other type of person that you're close to? A divorce? Have you been a victim of some type of abuse? Or are you experiencing some type of illness that you can't shake? And the struggles with forgiveness and resentment, all these things can be so heavy. It's such a heavy burden. But most times what we should actually do is take our hands off the situation and let God have it. And that's where we really get liberation and freedom. Do you ever find yourself struggling with something and you say, God, please help me through this? Because we're so conditioned to make God our last resort when what we should have been doing is letting him be the first resort and lead us in everything we do from the start. We say, God, take this from me when everything's bad. But then when everything starts to shape up, we say, all right, I think I got this. I can do this, God, I got this. And then we don't know what to do. I used to play football in high school and I was on defense because I didn't catch the ball real well. So they're like, at least you can bat it down or something. So this one time I was strafing alongside with a quarterback down the field and he threw the ball and I just put my hands up in hopes of making a play and the ball like stuck right into my hands. And then I came down and I did not know what to do. I was like, well, I was like, oh, and they're like, run. I was like, oh yeah. And then I got tackled. I made the interception though, but that's pretty much how life goes when we take it into our own hands. We have to ask him to guide us in everything. And we lay them aside by keeping our trust and confidence in him, not ourself. And Paul says the same thing about sin. And he makes a distinction because he lists weights and sins. All those things I listed before were weights that can weigh you down. Sins can also weigh you down, but not all weights are sins, if that makes sense. So what is the sin that clings so closely to you? Another translation says, which so easily ensnares. We're conditioned for it, all of us. Like, what's the thing that you do that you don't understand why you do it? The very thing you hate, like Paul says, but you keep on doing he mentions that in Romans 7, if you were wanting to find that. And Paul, I want to encourage you in a way, because Paul's this great man who was confronted face-to-face -face by Jesus. He was blinded on the road to Damascus. He wrote over half the New Testament, probably the most influential Christian that ever lived, aside from Christ, if we want to consider him a Christian. But he himself still had these struggles with sin. He met Jesus face to face and he still struggled with sin. And I don't, the encouragement I want to give you is not that because Paul did it, it's okay for you to do it. I want to encourage you that even this great man had these struggles and he still had to abide in Christ to deliver him from that. And I'm not talking about little petty things that you do, a piece of bubble gum or something small like that you've stolen in the past. I'm talking about the thing that you do, you still do to this day because we all are so conditioned to sin and we try so hard not to, but what is the thing that you're doing repeatedly that you would cringe if other people found out? Or maybe they'd cringe if they found out. And did you know that even our thought life can be sinful? The Bible says, as a man thinks, so is he. That applies to the ladies too. 
Jesus said, it is written, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, if you have hate in your heart toward another, you're already guilty of it. It's written, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look upon someone with lust, you're guilty of it in your heart. Because it really is the thought that counts. And I have thought to myself, what makes me or you any different from a murderer or an adulterer if we have those same hate and lustful desires in our own hearts? Is it just the action that separates us? Because how confident would you be if you're married or if you have a significant other and you looked at them and said, hey, I've never cheated on you. I think about it every now and then. It wouldn't go too well, I promise. (laughs) So don't do that. You know, we lay aside the sins in our life by identifying them. What is it that you're doing? That's why I asked you, what is it that you're doing, that you know that you're doing, that you could do better? It could just be a thought. It doesn't have to be the action. It could be your thought life. But then, perhaps the most important ingredient is confess it to God with the whole truth of what you're doing. And if you can open yourself like that to him, then he We'll start the process of repentance in your heart. And repent means to change. You can't change yourself and then come to God. You have to come to him and let him change you. We change our mindsets from sin, the action, or the thought itself to him. We focus on him. If we do that, we can't focus on all those other things. We don't even commit the action of sin Because really, the act of sin is just the fruit of the thought that preceded it in the first place and the condition of our minds. Paul said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind in 12.2. And I wanted to ask, you know, how do we repent when we're up against sins that cling so closely, as Paul puts it? Something that we struggle with, no matter our circumstances, it's just something that just keeps clinging to us and it ensnares us. And he luckily answers that in the next line. And I wanted to take a pause here because Lori told me I get too passionate sometimes. So if I, (laughs) it feels like I'm like yelling at you. I don't mean to do that. I just, this is so foundational for the way we can live our lives according to him that I feel really passionate about it. And I'm saying it from love and I'm not, I'm not angry. Thank you. I've, he says in the next line, he says, run with endurance, the race that is set before us because it's a spiritual endurance, not a physical one. This is where our feet endure the race step by step, methodically. Like I said, you didn't take two steps in that 5K. You took probably thousands of steps to finish that race. And those are like the fundamentals of faith that we use in Christ, our disciplines. And perhaps the two most impactful And repetitive steps we take are reading scripture and a lot of prayer. And of course, I would be saying that from a church pulpit. But I really think about this. Jesus did it himself. And when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he didn't argue. He didn't fight with him. He didn't smite him. He just quoted scripture. We have to memorize scripture. That's why it's so important to memorize it so when the temptation comes for you, you can do the same thing because it's our only weapon that Paul lists in the whole armor of God. Everything is a defense except for that one thing, and the word is our sword, as he puts it. And if you're a Chiefs fan, you might understand this, that sometimes the best defense is a really good offense. 
And another example Jesus set was that he prayed for hours and sometimes all night long. So you really think about it. Memorizing scripture as he did and praying as he did, we can't do it as much as he did because if we could meet that challenge, it wouldn't be God. But if he did these things so much, how much more are we in need of doing the same thing? The Bible's our guidebook to life and prayer is our connection with him. It's our personal relationship that we should never neglect. But we have to do them repetitively, like the thousands of steps in that race. It's perishable because the enemy will do whatever he can to destroy your mind. And if we aren't reading the Bible regularly and praying regularly, we really don't stand a chance against them. And if you notice, Paul says it's a race that's set before us. He didn't say the race that's set before each of you individually, because we all run the same race. And you may go your own way from time to time. You may have your own potholes to avoid, but there's one finish line. And that finish line is the only place that exists is at the cross. So what road do you find yourself on most days? Because Jesus said there's two roads. He said one was broad and the gate was wide that leads to destruction. He said many would find it. But then he said the other one was straight and narrow. That term straight and narrow, that's where that comes from. And that gate leads to life. And he said few would find it. And I want to take a second to focus on that word few because I don't want you to be discouraged because to us in our finite minds, a few is like three. But in God's mind, it's this great innumerable cloud with all its particulates. And I did some nerdy research. Uh, An average cloud is one kilometer by one kilometer by one kilometer. And it has like, I think, six trillion little droplets of water. But Paul didn't say it was an average cloud. He said it's a great cloud. And I know God is so thoughtful in the way he gives us his word. And I'm supremely confident that it's billions, trillions, maybe more. But I wanted to ask you what your eyes are focused on. Because Paul says to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What do you spend most of your time looking forward to and working so hard for? I know a lot of people that I used to work with that save up a lot of money and work a lot of extra hours so they go on this great vacation at the end of the year buy this huge truck that they just have had their eyes set on and it never fulfills them because you never, no one wants to go on vacation more than somebody who just came back from vacation. You ask them, hey, how was it? How was it? Oh, it's just, It's because it didn't fulfill them. Because if it did, they wouldn't want to go back because they'd be fulfilled from that point forward. They're looking for an escape. They're looking to fill a void that only God can give them, can fill. And we have to let him. He's not going to betray our free will to give him the opportunity to change our lives. We have to have our eyes focused on him. It wouldn't be love if it was forced. But he says also to focus on him as the founder of our faith. You know, your salvation story doesn't start the day you were born. It starts all the way back at the foundations of heaven and earth. In Genesis 1.1, that's where it began. It says, in Genesis 1, in the beginning was the word. I'll take that back. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you can see those capitalized W's there on the Word, because that's a pronoun. It's talking about somebody who was God and was with him. And it continues to say that nothing was created without him. I'm talking about his sovereignty, his founder. He's the founder. He's the author. Every time God created something in Genesis, it says, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a firmament. God said, let us create man in our image. He said words. It's how he reveals himself to his creation. It's how any of us reveal our minds and thoughts to each other. If Jeremy's out in the hallway and he says some, whatever he's talking about, and we're like, hey, you're not going to say, hey, I hear Jeremy's words. You hear Jeremy's words out there? <laughs> no, you're going to say, I hear Jeremy, because it's one and the same. And like before, I, I accidentally made a joke in the first service, and I didn't mean to, but I was going to say that's a poor illustration of God in, in that form. And I don't mean that towards you. I'm just saying, I can't really explain the infinite. I can only allude to it, right? Okay. Sorry, Jeremiah. <laughs> All right. But God's special revelations to us come in a written form of scripture and Jesus himself in his human form. We need to remember to use our eyes to look how he perfects our faith because John 1 continues and says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's him. That's Jesus. He is perfect. We are not. There's 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and it took human beings all the way to chapter 3 to mess it up. <laughs> but since then, if you survey the Old Testament, you'll see time and time and again, God made promise after promise after promise to restore us. And he made covenant after covenant. He says, you do this, I'll restore you. You do this, I'll make you a blessing to many nations. Then he said, here's the law, the covenant and the law of Moses. Live by it. If you don't, you could be stoned to death. And even in the face of the death penalty, by God's rule, man still chooses to rebel and go their own way. We're just conditioned for it. And that's why he had to come in the form of man for us. He became man to fulfill both God and man's end of the bargain. So we can justifiably be forgiven and we can actually say man upheld his end of the bargain. God had to do it himself, but got the job done. We can justifiably be forgiven because he would not be just to just forgive us without some type of recompense. But he is just to do exactly what he said because what Jesus did as a man, and he didn't just die on the cross. He lived a perfect life leading up to that so that when his blood was spilled, it was a perfect sacrifice and a ransom for everyone. So if we know all these things, What's your motive to do his will in your life? Are you convicted by what, has, what he's done? Do you have gratitude for what he's done as a motive? This is a very similar question, but I want you to catch the difference here and really find your motive in life. Do you want to be saved and therefore you do his will? Or do you want to do his will and therefore as a result you'll be saved? 
we really need to reflect what our heart is really set on in life. Because on slide 10, Jesus' heart was set on a deep-rooted joy that was set before him. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And I recently spent some time with Lloyd and Kathleen Shelton. I've done it multiple times now. And if you ever get a chance, uh, spend some time with them. They love the community of the church, and they have so much wisdom to offer. And it's always a great conversation. And I always leave with a stack of books about this big. Because he used to be a pastor, and he's like, here's all this stuff that will help you. And it did, actually, for this. So I came to this spot in one of the books he gave me because it was a translations book, and it gives you all the different translations of each verse throughout the whole Bible. And when I came to this part, there was one translation that had the word instead in the place of for. So I did a little word study because I was like, okay, someone got this wrong, and I'm a the what is it, theology nerd. So I looked into it, and it turns out the original text that we get our English translation from of Hebrews comes from Greek, and the Greek uh, word used in the place of four was that thing on the far right, <laughs> which is pronounced anti, and in this context, it means in denial of. So instead of for the joy, in denial of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like a, a scripture? Sounds kind of like, if anyone should follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. He always set the example. And in that, do you have joy in all this that we've been talking about? If so, is it a self-centered joy? Or is it one that you find yourself denying yourself for him and others? And is that what fulfills you? We have a, I don't know if it's a core value here exactly, uh, but if you need it, get it. I probably butchered that, but who or what are you running this race for? What is your heart set on? What makes it pound with excitement and eagerness to do his will? Jesus' heart was set on us. And at any moment, he could have said to hell to this place, literally, and went to be in heaven. But there would have been a missing ingredient if he did that, and he would have, we would have been lost forever. So in denial of going where he had every right to be in heaven, he took our blame and our punishment that we deserve so we could inherit his holiness and his blamelessness. And all our debts are paid because of it, because his love is so perfect. He died the worst death and he sacrificed his own son. We'll never be able to say, I would have sacrificed more than that or I would have gone through worse. He's always going to outdo everyone. And even if it means enduring the cross. Because as Christians, we like to think of enduring the cross as hanging on a piece of wood with nails in his hand and through his feet. And we, I say we like to do that because we gloss over all the rest because it's so gruesome. He was accused falsely, first of all. He had three charges brought against him that day. One is that he loved sinners. He healed on the Sabbath. And he claimed to be the son of God. I want you to imagine today being put to death because you loved someone, you healed someone, and you claimed to be the son of God. He was ar arrested deceptively in the middle of the night to avoid a resistance. He was spat on. He was beaten to the point he was unrecognizable. This is God in the flesh. 
They pulled the beard out of his face to the point he was bleeding. And they put a crown of thorns on his head. And these thorns were inch, two inches long, stabbing into his scalp. Then he went through a Roman scourge, which was a whipping with lead balls and metal spikes at the end of these leather thong. There it is. Then he carried his cross to the place that he would be crucified. And I can't imagine the pain he must have felt physically, but emotionally because those he loved so much and was dying for were doing this to him. I can't imagine the humility it must have taken to be God, be perfect and blameless, and take all the blame and all that for us. Probably the most unimaginable is that he says that he did it for us so we could all come be with him. You may say, I wasn't whipping him, Dane. We're the reason he had to do it. His motive wasn't selfish. He was in denial of it. He did it because of his love. And after all of this, it says he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And you can use all these parts of the body we spoke about for your race and be confident that he is our advocator and our intercessor. You can imagine him walking into a courtroom to defend you as your lawyer. That'd be great. And that's exactly what's happening. You don't need anyone else to do it for you. You can't earn a place in heaven with the Father. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We have to go to him. We don't go to him when we're well. We go to him to make us well. And the way this is all played out, God is so thoughtful and wise and poetic. All those thousands and millions of lambs that were slain because their blood was at least innocent. Because if we were sacrificing ourselves, it would be detestable because our blood is infected with sin. It's all a symbolism of him and his blood being poured out for all the sins of the world. And when he was arrested during the night, it was during the night of Passover. It wasn't just any random night. And the Pharisees and the enemy knew that there would be a resistance. So it had to be done deceptively under cover of darkness when they knew all the Jews were going to be inside their homes with the door shut and the lamb's blood over their door for Passover. But what they ended up doing, despite their best efforts, was lifting him up as the offering, the offering, and by spilling his blood and taking his life, which made him the Passover. He is our Passover. And then he rose again three days later. And he's alive right now. Paul wrote, Oh, death, where is your sting? The grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you a few questions. Some of them will land, some of them won't, but hopefully some of them apply to you and you can reflect on them. Because then we're entering the holiday season. We're going to miss somebody we want to make memories with, but we have our own family here. Remember, you'll see them again. They see you now. They are made holy as he is holy. And they are very concerned with your life. Because if he's concerned, I guarantee you they are as well. So I'm going to leave you these questions. What are you running your race for? And are you doing it well? Are your hands preparing you for the race? Are you ready to put them to use? Or maybe you recognize it's time you actually need to take your hands off the situation and get out of your own way. Are you ready to hit the ground running by getting more into scripture and more into prayer? Because no matter how much you do it, you don't do it as much as Jesus did. And if he did it, we need it. 
Are your eyes focused on Jesus and what he's done and is still doing to this day? He is the focal point, or is he the focal point of your life and every decision? Is your life truly Christ-centered in every decision and everything you do? It's very difficult. There's a lot of distractions. And are you willing to give your heart to him and make your motives conform to his life poured out so that we can pour our life out to him and be a living sacrifice to him? So before I break into prayer, I want to invite anybody who would feel led to come up and pray. We have members of the decision team wearing yellow lanyards in the front and the back. Maybe you just want somebody to pray with you or you want to lead your family up and pray. If you want to pray with a decision team member, they want to pray with you and answer any questions you may have. I want you to set out this week with hope for the future, with the deep-rooted joy, because you know how this story ends, which is really only the beginning, because we know where we're going, like Jake said. And let's make ourselves ready to endure this race, if you haven't already. And it has to be done by living a Christ-centered life and confidence that we are saved and he deeply and we he deeply loves us. And all we have to do is receive it. You don't have to do anything else. It's a gift. And you can do it today if you haven't already. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm gonna ask that anyone here led to pray would be encouraged by your Holy Spirit in this room and in their hearts. No matter the circumstances, if it's their first time coming to you or if they just want general prayer, prayer, that you would guide us in this race and the focal points of our lives. Thank you for your plan from the beginning. We know and we can be confident that you love us and we'll be with you forever. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.